Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. And you know what I'm going to say. We have got a lot to cram in in our time together. Before I reflect for a bit and then turn to your fantastic and wide-ranging but urgently topical questions, thanks a lot, all of you who came to King's Place or who watched on the uh, stream. It was a great night. It was brilliant meeting so many people from the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. I, in effect, uh, launched my new book, uh, Turning Points, Crisis and Change in Modern Britain from 1945 to Liz Truss at the, um, well, afterwards, signing books after the uh, show. And and, and so many, uh, I recognise the names because you email or are part of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. And uh, yeah, uh, even got presents from some. Uh, Helen the Baker, fantastic cake this time. And Venetia Kane, thank you so much for the beanies, uh, you know, uh, Venetian knits for the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Anyway, it was brilliant. A couple of things to report, unusually for these live shows. I always ask the audience to make a prediction at the beginning. And quite often the audience for the live stream produces a different verdict to the live audience, at least proportionately. But I asked this time whether the audience predicted that Labour would win an overall majority at the next election. And by two-thirds to a third in both cases, live and on the stream, they predicted that Labour would win an overall majority. Anyway, we delve deep. I hope we had some fun and thank you so much for coming. The next live show is on October the 23rd at uh, King's Place and uh, the tickets are on sale. I'll put the link in. It will be almost like a kind of sequel but self-contained to the one the other day. Uh, We'll have had the by-elections, the party conferences where various party leaders seek definition in this all-important build-up to the next general election. And the by-elections will be mood shapers. Some aren't by-elections, some don't matter, some do. These ones will do. Uh, The one in Scotland, in Rutherglen, the uh, all-important Nadine Doris by-election in Mid-Beds and Tamworth and all, yeah. Uh, So anyway, October the 23rd, we will be gathering to make sense of it all. Now, if it's okay with all of you, as I mentioned already, (laughs) I'm not going to do it very often, I promise you, Uh, but I've got this book out, Turning Points in Modern Britain, Crisis and Change from 1945 to Liz Truss. And last week, I kind of explored one of the themes in the present context, which was in relation to post-Brexit foreign policy, arguing that we haven't really got a foreign policy in the United Kingdom. And there's been further proof of that in recent uh, days, and showing how actually the questions that raged after the Suez crisis, one of the turning points in the book, are still the very same questions being posed now. What is the relationship with the United States? Do we opt for a special relationship, in inverted commas, with the United States, even if it's a subservient one? Um, Or do we move closer to Europe, which was the move that Harold Macmillan made? He replaced Eden, of course, after the Suez crisis. Then Harold Wilson tried to make, and then Heath finally got us in. But now we have left. So what is our relationship with Europe? And look at what Keir Starmer uh, has done uh, very sensibly in recent days, proposed in very very general terms uh, that part of the attempt at a solution to the so-called boats crisis is to negotiate some kind of arrangement with the European Union. It's a statement of the obvious. By definition, if there's a crisis involving borders and control of borders, there are countries on the other side of borders. So you've got to do a deal. And we have one in the European Union. 
And of course, Lord Frosty Frost negotiated that away, uh, thinking that would please Boris Johnson, who didn't know what was going on. And so now we are back into a position where even when a leader of the opposition very sensibly almost states the obvious that it would help if we have an agreement, all hell breaks loose because the Telegraph and the Mail and the right wing of the Conservative Party says, oh, Starmer wants people to come to this country. And yet people are already coming in the chaotic arrangements currently in place. Arrangements are too elevated a term. And so on we go. Is it closeness with Europe on our doorstep? What is the relationship with the United States? Anyway, do listen back if you uh, missed last week's episode. Um, This week, I'm going to pose a question. So the book looks at uh, turning points from 1945. It includes, obviously, therefore, the 45 Labour government the Suez crisis I've mentioned, the quadrupling of the oil price in 1973, which shaped the 1970s, the 79, which was the counter-revolution to the 45 revolution, and so on. And I want to address a question today, which is this. Uh, This is not in the book, obviously, because we don't know the answer. But here is the question. Are we on the edge of an historic turning point now, with the next general election looming, with a sense uh, way beyond, say, kind of traditional Labour voters or Lib Dem voters, uh, that nothing works in Britain, that there is a dysfunctionality at the heart of uh, Britain that needs explaining. Are we on the edge of a historic turning point in which an era ends and Britain turns in a different direction? Some of you might think, well, what what the hell is even asking the question when there is no evidence of a significant hunger for change in the current Labour leadership? But what there is, is something that was also in place when Britain did turn significantly in 1945 and 79, the counter-revolution to 45, which is a sense that urgent change is required. In 1945, what was so interesting about that Labour government, to levels which I hadn't quite realised until I did the research for the chapter in the book on 45, um, the degree to which Attlee and that extraordinary government moved with the times, not just in the sense that the war had ended and those returning from the war expected levels of provision that weren't in place before, but also the degree to which the ideas that the Attlee government moved to address or to adopt had been in place for a long time. I mean, most obviously, of course, the Beveridge Report came out in the early 1940s and was sort of kind of treated like a bestseller. People queued up in shops to buy the Beveridge Report and Beveridge gave a televised address about his report and behaved almost as if he was a minister of his government, sort of saying, you know, this should happen, this should happen, this will happen, blah, blah, blah. And the major parties, the governing Conservative Party, the Labour Party in coalition with the Conservatives at the time, broadly responded with great enthusiasm to the Beveridge Report. Um, So there were ideas about new responsibilities for the state bubbling under four decades. The same applies to welfare reform to some extent. And uh, beyond Beveridge, going back to Lloyd George and others. And of course, education was the theme of the Butler Act of 1944. Butler was the education secretary in the wartime government. So along with the sense that Britain had to change, uh, housing, of course, was another huge, huge issue before the war, during the war. And Almost Atlee and his ministers had permission 
to address these deep crises in the way Britain functioned by 1945. And boy, did they take that permission and move very speedily. Uh, I mean, just look at the remit for Nye Bevan. He was not only health secretary, he was also the housing minister as well. And the NHS was in place by 1948, 49. It was functioning across the country. And they had only been elected in 45. So the turning point was very, very fast. And it had two factors to bring it about. A consensus that change was required, which was deep, but also the political will to then act because, uh, you know, wholly predictably, uh, in some of the uh, areas where there was a kind of vague consensus that things needed to change, uh, when the specifics were addressed by this Labour government, the Conservatives often opposed, and pretty vehemently as well, uh, most famously the uh, introduction of the NHS, but other matters too. But the, the will of a bunch of very experienced, quite elderly ministers, quite exhausted ministers. A lot of them had been in that wartime coalition. They had fought the traumatic battles of the early 1930s, late 1920s amidst economic storms, the schism in the Labour Party as Macdonald formed the national government and most of them stayed put in the Labour Party. And then finally they got to power and were ready to move in effect with the tides. But even when the tides are moving in a certain direction, you still have to take control of them and shape them. It's not inevitable that a sense of an era ending and a new one beginning leads in the end to a very decisive turning point. And 1979, the counter-revolution to 45, contained those um, same ingredients. At the end of the 1970s, there was a sense that nothing worked, that Britain needed to change. We had had, under a succession of Labour and Conservative prime ministers, a sense of hopeless chaos, industrial turmoil, raging inflation, the three-day week power cuts under Heath, uh, Wilsonian attempts that were not particularly lasting to address those issues. Jim Callaghan moves in and they come back again, raging inflation, the winter of discontent, and so on. And the, incidentally, uh, much of it fueled by one of the key turning points, the quadrupling of the price of oil. And uh, so the ingredients were in place for change and for a turning point. And Thatcher came in and had the political will to shape the turning point towards her own radical impulses. Uh, and that's what they were, by the way. They weren't deep, clearly thought through uh, policies arising from a sophisticated uh, ideological base. She had radical impulses against the state, in favor of the free market, uh, in favor of property ownership, and so on. But whatever they were, she had the will to prevail. And to some extent, we are all still living through her counter-revolution. Just look at the issue of ownership, privatization, the great sort of running theme, not in her early phase of leadership, it wasn't a part of it then, beyond the very important sale of council houses with consequences we are living through today with the shortage of affordable housing. But in the privatizations of water and all the other ones that uh, were implemented, energy and so on, we still live with them today. Uh, New Labour in its era from 1997 accepted them and indeed wanted to show their enthusiasm for them by privatizing a little more. 
And now we have a Labour leadership similarly either fearful or genuinely opposed to the idea of um, ending these privatisations. And so, again, it required political will to move it in that direction. The 80s could have moved in all kinds of directions, as they did in other European countries and, to some extent, the United States. But instead, Britain had its own very distinct counter-revolution to 1945. Now consider the current situation. And clearly, as I say, the first part of the ingredient is in place. It is very interesting wherever you go, and I know a lot of you travel around and uh, speak to people from a range of different backgrounds and interests and so on. It's not difficult to build up a consensus that things aren't working and there is a sense of crisis and hopelessness and despair as there was in different ways in 45 and again in 79. The very privatizations that were hailed as a triumph are now themselves uh, subject to intense doubt at best. Sewage from the privatized water industries going into the rivers and the sea. The privatized trains overpriced, not turning up. And uh, with so many mediating agencies, it's not at all clear who is responsible for what. An energy market that is absurd with different companies betting on the price of the same gas. And if they bet wrongly, they can collapse, but then the government has to move in and deal with it, et cetera, et cetera. They aren't working and people know they're not working. Housing is also a massive issue again, almost as big, I think, in a different way as it was in 1945. If you are a nurse or a teacher or a police officer or whatever uh, in one of the cities where housing is expensive and rented accommodation is astronomical, you almost can't afford to live there. But then if you live outside, you have to pay for this expensive, unreliable transport to get in, and so on. A sense that nothing is working is in place again, as it was in 45 and 79, and to some extent as it wasn't in 1997, although we should not forget the state of public services in 1997. I keep on reading that New Labour inherited a golden sort of legacy of growth which is true, they did get the growth. But one of the reasons why the economy was sort of rolling along was that the public spending had been constrained to the point where services were dire, though nowhere near as dire as they are now. So the question is, as to whether we are on the edge of a turning point, is whether the will is there from Labour, in effect, to bring about the turning point, which in many ways the country aches for. And here it's really interesting. And, you know, it, it, you could easily put the case for saying, well, well, clearly they haven't. Probably they will stick to the kind of broad spending and tax plans of uh, the current administration, as Gordon Brown and Tony Blair did in 1997. They don't seem to have any plans of any detail to deal with the failings of all those privatizations and so on. You could make a case and a credible case that the will, the second ingredient required of a turning point following a change of governing party, is not in place. But that would not be the whole picture and it wouldn't be wholly fair either. If you look at some of the challenges, and they are unique, as each governing party, when there is a change, faces new circumstances, there are still in place at the moment pretty radical plans for addressing climate change based on those of Biden in the US and the European Union. And in a way, if the UK sort of opts out from what those powerful forces are doing in relation to climate change, Britain will be even more isolated than it is. 
And although the borrowing of £28 billion a year has been delayed, um, I suspect they will have no choice but to be pretty bold in terms of what they do. And I detect no lack of commitment on that front from the highly cautious Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves. And uh, I think Edmund Laban will make that post in Cabinet. There are some around Keir Starmer who don't like him for being associated with Gordon Brown, for having radical ideas that they do not regard as within the sort of remit of, say, a Blair-like figure. Uh, but Starmer and Reeves, I think, are fairly committed. So that could be a significant change. On that energy market, they uh, propose, it's not quite clear how it'll all work, uh, a publicly owned energy company to be neatly placed in Scotland, where the North Sea will be uh, less uh, busy. Um, I won't put it any more than that because they are committed to implementing any contract signed between now and the election. But that will be an interesting intervention in a market that really isn't working. Um, so that's another example. I think it is interesting that the charitable status of private schools is going to be removed. This is something that uh, when he was shadow education secretary, you'll all be far too young to remember this, uh, David Blunkett raised as a possibility in the build-up to 1997, and all hell broke loose. Blair Brown, too, were in a state. We, can, we mustn't show that we want to cap aspiration, blah, blah, blah. Poor old David Blunkett had to go out and say, um, I might have given an interview saying we haven't ruled this out. I can tell you we have ruled it out. Well, this is a uh, policy which I think they are committed to. I think they will have no choice but to invest in the NHS on a, a pretty big scale. It's interesting, if you listen carefully to Starmer, he is emphasising reform in inverted commas, that magic word that uh, gets um, the uh, Times newspaper and Blairite columnists so excited. You don't have to specify what the reform is, you just have to say the word. And they say, oh, this is such grown-up politics and so on. But he's also very clear to say, almost in parenthesis at the moment, of course it needs resources, but reform will have to do a lot of the heavy lifting. They appear, although it is vague, to be committed to some kind of uh, social care policy as well. And in these areas, along with, I think, the state of public transport, they're going to have no choice. And I think the patience of voters, because the scale of the crisis is altogether greater, will be less than it was under New Labour. And I think they will discover this quite quickly. In other words, New Labour really only started to address the problems of the NHS in the second term. I don't think the voters, or indeed the media, which will be very fickle about all of this. Um, I mean, the media don't like it when Labour makes spending commitments in advance of an election. But you watch the Mail run front pages about the NHS if they don't do something very quickly about it. I also think that although the devolution of power will not be as great as sometimes is suggested, that the advance of mayors will be a sort of model of radicalism. What uh, Andy Burnham is doing, say, in Greater Manchester, uh, sorting out the uh, appalling deregulation and privatisation of the buses and the trams and all the rest of it, it is a very interesting model where you know elected mayors can be more daring than the kind of fearful caution that tends to permeate any Labour government in Westminster in the current modern era. So all combined, I think the answer is really interesting and not yet set. This could be a government with the will to uh, be part of a turning point, or it might not be. And if it's not, I have to say, I think it will be um, 
swallowed up and spat out very, very quickly. So that's the positive one, the turning point, the danger for them. If they um, sort of uh, continue to say, well, you know, oh, Blair wouldn't do this, Blair wouldn't do that, we must stick to what Blair would do and kind of use that as a model for government is uh, I, I think the, the the model could be Heath in 1970, who won uh, an election, which many incidentally didn't think he would win. So he had the authority of a surprise election win. Kistama is expected to win at the moment. But uh, Heath was swallowed up by events and uh, they were already in place in the late 60s, but intensified. Strikes, industrial turmoil, a fear of unemployment, and um, uh, he had adopted a series of pretty right-wing policies which he thought would win an election that he didn't necessarily wholly believe in the way that uh, Kistama is kind of echoing, I think almost... I assumed it was conscious, but I don't think in his case it is. It might be with some of those around him, but not him. But if he doesn't have the will to rise to these huge challenges of now, so different from 97, there could be a sort of Heath-like crisis. Of course, Heath was gone in under four years. Uh, One in June 1970 was out in February 1974. So... We are clearly uh, at the end of an era, an era that began in uh, really 79 uh, of assumptions about the uh, wholly unqualified success of council house sales, of privatizations, of um, fiscal conservatism, Rishi Sunak, the latest manifestation, but now clearly facing contrary ideological tides, that thing of Callahan saying, I'm living through a sea change. I think Sunak is really. I think there are deeper forces at play. It's not about his lack of uh, you know, political skill, although that's clearly a factor in someone so inexperienced. It, it's about the sort of ideological context of the times. And people like William Hague, and even I had to lie down in a darkened room when I read it, Andrew Neil have acknowledged that this era, it's about the role, more about anyway, the role of a modern state uh, in contrast to 79, which became through the willfulness of Thatcher, Geoffrey Howe, the newspapers, uh, some other think tanks, some other ministers became about how little the state can do. Um, So yeah, I think uh, uh, we will be living through very interesting times. Uh, And in the meantime, the book, my book, actually, Turning Points, Crisis and Change in Modern Britain from 1945 to Liz Truss is on sale from this Thursday officially, but I'm told it's out and about in quite a few places already. So do get copies and uh, yeah, let me know what you think. And um, now it's time talking of all of you for questions, points raised by you. As ever, I've got loads. Try and get through as many as possible. Uh, it's Steve Rick 14 at iCloud.com. And we begin by Matt Watts, who says, uh, Oh, fantastic podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, just got back from King's Place. Great to see the show in person. Thank you very much, Matt. That, that, that's, that's why you're including the questions. I, I'm a sucker for praise. Anyway, I was reflecting on your thoughts about Keir Starmer and found myself trying to predict which, if any, would be the characteristic or quality which as you often like to reflect on, constituted a key element both to his rise and ultimate downfall. Could his demise be the hemming in by the fiscal constraints Labour are constructing around themselves, or will the electorate ultimately punish him for too often saying one thing to appease the electorate in front of him and then shifting course in office? Um, 
maybe we're getting too far ahead of ourselves, but what you think could spell the end of Starmer. Yeah, well, hold on a second, Matt. But by the way, Matt says, P.S., I run a board games meetup group in East London, so I'll be very happy to provide the games for all the rock and roll cooperative shindigs leading up to the election and beyond. Well, we might need a few laughs leading up to the election and beyond, Matt. So you're on. Uh, game playing with Matt Watts. Uh, it's his official role in the cooperative. I am fascinated in this theme that you can often trace the seeds of a leader's fall uh, in their rise. And that applies to the big election winners, Thatcher, Wilson, as it does Blair, actually, as it does to those who are not quite so formidable in their election winning prowess. As to, <laughs> it really, I think we're leaping several hurdles here with Keir Starmer. Uh, but I do think that there is a question. The fiscal constraints they are announcing, you know, rolling out virtually any tax rises, no borrowing of any significance for current spending and that kind of thing, really does limit what they can do. And either they renege on some of that or have in the back of their pocket the so-called stealth taxes. Gordon Brown had prepared them after 1997. Um, and I think their thinking is, well, we can't win the tax and spend debate before an election. We need to reassure the markets and all that kind of thing. But they must have in mind some revenue-raising measures. But we'll have to see, because by definition, they don't brief them in advance, or else it kills the whole, uh, oh, we're going to be tough, watch us being tough on spending. The whole thing is such a, a farce that pre-election tax and spend debate. But I, I I think we, given that he hasn't fully risen, Matt, I think the seeds of the fall, uh, I think we're being a bit premature. Uh, Venetia Kane, um, on several occasions, including last Wednesday at King's Place, you said how much you dislike the term centrist and explained that so many people on all parts of the political spectrum so describe themselves that it's meaningless. Um yeah, so I do. It's a ubiquitous term and so imprecise. It's actually quite dangerous. I, I, I'm going to go into it more in the next King's Place show. So she wondered how I did describe myself. Um, and what about a left of centre moderate? Is that okay? Um, uh, well, uh, ish. Ish, Venetia. So even the term moderate, I think, is a bit... Uh, presumptuous sometimes uh, and left wing needs defining very clearly you know uh, let me just give you an example of how i think moderate is sometimes misused so for example i and many others wanted a second referendum on brexit to stop brexit and i think it would have been much better for britain if brexit had been stopped but i don't for one second see that as a moderate policy um, to overturn a democratic referendum uh, is pretty extreme. But it was described when Labour people did it, it was described approvingly by those who see themselves as, say, left of centre moderate columnists in, say, The Guardian. Uh, they were described as Labour moderates. So the Labour moderates calling for a second referendum, blah, 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 blah. It's not moderate. It was right. And it would have saved the country the economic chaos and travel chaos, etc., of Lord Frosty Frost Brexit. But I don't think it's moderate. So what I seek, I mean, you, a clever politician can frame a set of coherent arguments and policies and win and then claim them as the centre ground. Or you can do what Thatcher did, which is to adopt a load of policies from the radical right and dismiss the centre and say those who walk in the middle of the road get run over. But what I don't think you can do is just say I'm on the centre ground and expect a kind of uh, nodding acceptance without much clearer definition of, of what it means. Uh, more on that uh, on another occasion. Yeah, uh, Matthew Ryder from Huntington in Cambridge, uh, he came to the show. We had a nice uh, talk afterwards. Um, he said, I felt quite lifted afterwards and also appreciated meeting some other members of the cooperative. Yeah, I, I felt the same, Matthew. Yeah, I don't know. It's like going to a revivalist meeting or the Moonies. No, 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 it's not like the Moonies. Um, anyway, 
I wanted to ask your thoughts on Keir Starmer's recent shadow cabinet reshuffle. I was a little shocked by his decision to demote Lisa Nandy and don't fully understand why Starmer did this. I think she had been one of the better communicators in the shadow cabinet. In my view, she's been an effective champion of those parts of the UK that the Tory government has neglected over the past 13 years. I also thought that she had successfully challenged Michael Gove over the failure of the Tories' Uh, leveling up. Yeah, it's interesting, Matthew, um, about this. And uh, I haven't fully got it, uh, the, the reasoning beyond a couple of thoughts. One is that reshuffles have victims who are sometimes almost inadvertent victims. And I don't think this she was an inadvertent victim, except on this front, that they had decided that uh, Angela Rayner needed a meaty brief and that the one most suited to her was the levelling up brief and therefore they had to move uh, Lisa Nandy. But then to, in effect, demote her in a humiliating way suggests that Starmer doesn't rate her. I think that some of his uh, entourage regard her uh, well, they were, I think there are some, I'm told, in the kind of entourage at you know various levels who regard anyone on the so-called soft left. And by the way, that needs definition as well. What does that, what does that mean, soft left? Um, anyway, but they regard them as uh, the, needing to be absolutely purged in the coming months. They won't give up on Ed Miliband, they, uh, although Starmer is loyal to him. They probably they can't do much about Angela Rayner because she's elected, so they went for her. So maybe that's another factor. But some people tell me she was lazy and all the rest of it, but I, I don't, th you know, th th that in itself would not do as a criteria because as you suggest she is actually quite effective and she's written a lot about towns in ways that are very interesting she certainly took her brief from Keir Starmer in January to uh, uh, bring about a historic transfer of power very seriously uh, maybe too seriously because in the end governments are very wary of transferring power but it was utterly ruthless, and there was a briefing that they expected her not to take the post. She's now got Shadow International Development, um, but she took it. I don't know whether that's the case either. Um, but it, it, it's disturbed a lot of people quite high up in the Labour Party, including within the Shadow Cabinet, uh, the way she was uh, treated. I've spoken to a lot who uh, uh, are very uneasy about it. Uh, great to see you. See you next time, Matthew. And next, on to Neil Gwynn, who describes themselves as the collective's engineering rep for Edinburgh. And um, uh, Neil writes, Mark Blythe, he, he writes in detail about this. I haven't got time to read the whole thing out, uh, Neil. Mark Blythe, an economics lecturer, uh, lecturer at a Brown University and supporter of independence, made an excellent assessment on a recent podcast. After the SNP's implosion, independence is in a lull. He said, with the prospect of a Labour government and a potential centrist government in Westminster, independent support might drop. But he said Labour have one term to fundamentally change the country, back to the turning point issue. If they go on with business as usual uh, and with some economic malaise, he thinks by 2030, independent support will rocket and Scotland will leave this time. And Neil says that's quite a persuasive argument. Um, and he lists other reasons why he thinks independent is going to independence for Scotland is going to persist as an issue in a way that perhaps in parts of England it hasn't really been recognised. You know, there, are, there isn't a thing, oh, yeah, the fall of Nicholas Serge and that's it. It's going to kill off independence for the time being, uh, support for independence. Um, I kind of agree with Neil, actually. There are underlying reasons. And the stake is, stakes are quite high for Keir Starmer to turn this into a turning point, because I think that will uh, make it much more difficult for independence to prevail in Scotland. Um, but failure to do so, as Neil suggests, could be one factor in independence uh, reviving, if it is fading. It's not entirely clear it's fading even at the moment. Uh, thank you, Neil. Um, Anthony Howe, 
I've just turned 20, so only got interested in politics around the 2017 election during the heat of the Brexit divisions. Good time to get interested, Anthony, uh, on the grounds that it was a wholly depressing period, but very exciting with lots of forces coming into play. And it's always interesting to get interested in politics at such points. He says, I want to know the relationship between Ed Miliband and Ed Balls when Ed Miliband was the leader of the party. I, I'm surprised there were so many tensions because they were cut from the same brownite cloth, both close advisors to Brown. Um, yeah. Uh, well, Anthony, it's a, a very interesting point that you raise, and it's quite an important one, actually, uh, because there in the build-up to the 2015 general election, just as you were almost becoming interested in politics, Anthony. There was uh, Ed Miliband as leader. Pretty soon, not at first, but pretty soon he made Ed Ball's shadow chancellor. And they didn't get on. And there were considerable tensions between them. And there were, when they worked for Gordon Brown, I gather, though it was less clear then. And... Um, I think Ed Miliband found Ed Balls pretty intimidating in some respects. Uh, one of Ed Miliband's advisors, Tom, he dreaded his meetings with Ed Balls when they were discussing economic policy. Um, in some ways, Ed Miliband wanted them to go much further, uh, to be sweepingly generalistic, more to the left, but not always. For example, Ed Balls was absolutely adamant that they didn't concede that the last Labour government's spending plans were responsible for the global financial crash, as some of Ed's brothers, David supporters, in effect, wanted them to do. It was a complicated relationship. I haven't got time to go into it more now, but it was, um, uh, yeah, you need to delve deep to kind of make sense of it. But the fact that it was so tense was, I think, a factor, a small one, but a factor in the um, failure of Labour to do better in 2015. Sean Colston writes, I'm travelling by train to Nottingham today and despite concerns that the connecting trains might be delayed or cancelled such as the state of railways in this country, I managed to get a copy of your book from Waterstones, yeah, in advance of publication date. You'll be aware that another well-known podcaster has a new book out this month. I can't think who you're referring to there, Sean. But I wanted to highly recommend Turning Points to everyone in the cooperative. Thank you very much, Sean. And sod any other uh, podcaster with books out at the moment, as uh, you imply. Uh, perhaps I put it more overtly. Thank you very much. I hope you got back. Relying on trains these days is no guarantee whatsoever. Now, Andy Davis, uh, our white van driver of the uh, Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, has been uh, emailing me urgently to look at the issue of taxation and um, how we tax in Britain. And by the way, Andy, you've been sure there's a very good piece uh, in the New Statesman by Harry Lambert on this very issue about whether we should tax wealth or um, uh, income. And in Britain, it tends to be income and wealth is taxed at a relatively low rate. And he quotes another report. Um, if the tax rates on income and increases in wealth were equalised, then additional tax revenue of £170 billion a year might be raised in the UK as a result. And Andy says, do you agree that even if Labour dare not endorse this publicly yet, Tory newspapers, etc., it's exactly the sort of bold vision needed to reset UK PLC for the 21st century? Growth can never be enough, given all the problems we face. Andy, this is at the heart of it. And Labour needs to be very careful not to rule out uh, some of the options available for taxing wealth. Rachel Reeves has ruled out a wealth tax, um, but it's one of, the, again, one of these ubiquitous terms like centre ground that are so ubiquitous they become meaningless. But it is really interesting uh, the degree to which uh, wealth isn't 
tax and income from work, labour is, and there's money to be had there. Uh, so thank you for persisting in in that point. Uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Burroughs, still loving the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, sorry I don't have any stories about baking or running along canals to share. I'm writing this email when I'm meant to be working. Perhaps that's a noteworthy anecdote. It is, Jonathan. And you've got your priorities right. Sod the work, just listen to all of us lot. Um, hopefully it speaks to my passion for the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative and the good you all do. Uh, and uh, Jonathan says, he, he cites a number of reasons, and a lot of you are going to disagree with him. I've reached the conclusion that the case against PR is pretty cut and shut, and that its advocates are confused about what they hope to achieve. We have direct experience of what PR would feel like in practice, the 2010 coalition government, arguably one of the worst governments in living memory. Uh, and he goes on to explain some of the other things that governments are formed behind closed doors, all the arguments against uh, electoral reform. Now, this is a popular, popular crusade among some in the rock and roll politics uh, cooperative. We must have it. Um, I, Jonathan, am a recent convert. I've been converted by people here to electoral reform. I am a recent convert, and I've become more convinced, actually, someone was telling me the other day that the reason why there is this everyone claims to be a centrist in the centre ground is because you're just going for the floating voter in general elections. And by definition, the floating voter has voted for the other party, so you need to get them back. And you do it by sort of ultra-caution and being on an unspecified centre ground. Anyway, but that's not where you are. Um, I was with you, but I'm not now. But you will get responses uh, to your point about um, where we are on this. And you will be okay, Jonathan, if Labour get in, electoral reform will not be on the agenda. And thanks very much for your nice comments, hope you're not getting into trouble while you're listening to this. Uh, now, I'm going to read out one more. I've got loads and loads and loads here. Uh, so we're going to have to have another... Well, I'm going to keep them for the next session. Uh, uh, the last one from Elizabeth Smutney. I'm a new listener and very happy one as I discovered your podcast by chance. I'm working through your back catalogue on my commute. Uh, oh, great. Oh, well, that, that should, well, the back catalogue is growing fast by definition. Anyway, Elizabeth says, I moved to Britain in 1996. So it's been a while and quite a few elections of political dramas. I'm from Austria, which doesn't allow Allowed dual citizenship. Therefore, I'm not allowed to vote in UK elections. The rest of my family are. So I could bring some views from the outside and Austrian food. Uh, yeah, yeah, we could do with some Austrian food uh, in our time together. And she says, I'd be very interested in your view of the 2015 election. Uh, so here we go again, you know, the the, the last question about uh, uh, Ed Balls and Ed Miliband. The Tory victory took me by surprise. I read and followed the whole political uh, spectrum. And most comparisons uh, for the next election are uh, usually other elections are cited, uh, but never 2015. Why is the 2015 election the forgotten one? Nobody mentions the Ed Miliband and his pledges. Uh, they do, actually, <laughs> Elizabeth. His Ed Stone is cited very often. All the man mansion tax, which, in my opinion, cost him the election, uh, similar to the dementia tax and fox hunting, which cost Theresa May the 2017 election. Uh, well, the 2015 election, you're right, it's not one that uh, is cited uh, very often. And... I think there were quite a few factors in the result, which was a surprise to many people, the, an overall majority, a very small overall majority, uh, to David Cameron and the Conservatives. Um, but I think the die was cast long before the campaign itself, Elizabeth. I think that uh, the election itself of Ed Miliband so disturbed the followers of David, his brother, who began briefing against him within hours of getting it. So there was always a sense uh, that that parliamentary party was a deeply disturbed one, and that kind of permeates outwards. Um, Ed Miliband himself did not have some of the sort of 
leaderly qualities required or I think a kind of self-confidence and utter ruthlessness of leadership. I think he had a, a vision and the ideas to build on the vision, but in a way he couldn't quite work out whether he wanted to go for the Blairite caution on which he had been brought up, though he never was part of it. Um, he was always thrilled, for example, when the son said anything nice about him, because uh, he had been brought up in that whole thing, we got to woo the sun, we got to woo the times, or be the radical that he was by instinct. And he never fully worked it out. And when you're not sure yourself, voters can pick up on that. And the papers went for him. And the papers remain very powerful in defining a figure uh, and, and gave Cameron a relatively easy time in uh, contrast. So there were lots of reasons. Uh, the mansion tax, you're right, it wasn't fully thought through and uh, was a factor in what clearly became Labour's uh, fatal pitch. But it is, it's an interesting election because it's out of time. You know, you think of David Cameron and his kind of pitch about stability under Cameron compared with the prospect of chaos under Miliband. Uh, and the chaos that followed that election is something we are still living through now. Anyway, look, uh, uh, my apologies to some of you sending some brilliant emails. They're going to come up. They're going to come up. Uh, I'm, I've made a note of some of the ones that I haven't read out. Um, we'll do so at some point, but I think we better move on. Uh, some of you are working and listening to this. Some of you would have run miles and miles in beautiful countryside or by the sea. Anyway, keep the points coming. We're entering that kind of party conference season, which is going to be absolutely fascinating. And uh, we might have to gather more than once a week for that. Uh, who knows? So anyway, give me more chance to read out some of your questions. But thanks so much again, as say, for attending King's Place and for coming next time if you plan to. If you're up for it, please leave a review. Uh, it makes a lot of difference for reasons I don't quite understand, but it gives me a thrill as well. Because please only leave a review if it's a really good one. And yeah, have a great time. Keep paying attention to all the twists and turns. We've got to listen, listen carefully to go beyond the kind of cliches and stereotypes and casually held but false assumptions that shape quite a lot of the reporting of British politics. Anyway, look, thanks so much. Take care. See you all soon. Bye. Bye.